Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have. Joining me on this episode is Peter Moore. After the hopes of a promising professional football career came to a halt through injury, Peter moved into the entertainment industry, working first in record promotion before moving into concerts and tours, working with acts including McFly, Westlife and Kaiser Chiefs to name a few. In more recent years, Peter has co-founded Seamless Entertainment, which work on providing music solutions for the motion picture industry. He sat down with me to discuss his career and of course to unwrap the story behind the worst gift he's ever been given. So Peter, thanks so much for joining the show. It's great to have you here. No, it's an absolute pleasure, James, and thanks for inviting me. It's nice to uh, nice to speak with you. Absolutely, no problem at all. Now, before we get into your career in the entertainment industry, I understand that your big passion was football from an early age. So was that the goal early on, to be sort of a professional footballer? It was. I mean, I was probably like any young lad, to be honest with you, James. I, you know, seven, eight years old, kicking a ball around. Sort of took it a bit seriously when I was 11 and 12. And my dad used to come and watch me play. And um, he came home one day and said, uh, said to my mum, Pete's actually really quick and he's actually really good. Maybe we should, you know, support him and take him further. And my mum said, yeah, yeah, okay. The usual sort of story, but she was really supportive. And it sort of went on from there, really. Um, my dad sort of came and watched me play quite a lot. I, I from 11, 12, I sort of went on to, um, I sort of used at Gillingham. I went sort of the, the, the youth side at Bournemouth. Sort of funny little story, really. When I got to sort of 13, 14, and I was playing sort of the, the youth academies and I was up at Gillingham sort of every other week, I used to play for the uh, the boys' clubs. I'm not sure if you were them back in the day, but they were sort of clubs all up, up and down the country. And um, I got invited to play for the boys' club, effectively. And the boys' club used to travel all over Europe playing football. And this one particular year, we, um, I say particular year, we were invited every year for about five years to play in France. Basically, cut a long story short. It's quite funny, really. I was ended up playing for the boys' club in just outside France. We played the game. At the end of the game, it was it was a one-one draw. It was a really great game. And there was this old chap on the sideline with his cigar on and his hat on and his and his trench coat. And he came up to me at the end and uh, in his French sort of English accent and said, "Oh, you played really well, young man. And da 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 da. Would you like to stay on and have some, you know, more trials and play football?" And of course, I said yes. I went back and told my mum and dad and of course they were a bit dubious and said we're not really sure about this and um it turned out that he was one of the chief scouts for Paris Saint-Germain no way yeah honestly James you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it and I was sort of 15 then I was coming back to the UK and um effectively I went out to France and um sort of stayed out in France for quite a period of time I I basically done the sort of the youth umbrella of Paris Saint-Germain for quite a while and um to give you an idea, I suppose just to give you a lot of flavour of what happened, I when you go for a trial, it's like anything. You're up against obviously some, you know, some really good people, um, some outstanding people. And when I stayed with the French family that I was put with, the the French uh, gentleman, uh, Pina, his name was, said to me, "When you go tomorrow, you're going to be in front of 500 players, and they will the cold the first day about half to about 215." Oh wow! I was like, it's ruthless, absolutely ruthless, James. I got there and I thought to myself, just in the back of my mind, what my dad used to say to me, he said, you're quick, son. You know, you're, you're good with the ball at your feet. No one could... I was lucky as well, James, because I was really quick, so no one could really get near me at, at, at that young age. What, what position did um, you play? I played left wing and I played right wing. Okay. So arrived uh, on the day there was five about 580 lads and in the first morning they cut 300. Wow. I was like, whoa, whoa. okay. 
And then it went on and on and on. And we got down to the last 50 for the last three days. And I was just having a great time. There was players from Germany, Hungary, Scotland. I mean, you name it. And I was sort of 14, 15. Um, and it got down to the last four or five. And um, obviously they they thanked everybody for coming and, you know, I had a wonderful week. I had, a, I had an amazing sort of week there. And I was expecting, oh, well, I've done my best. And my name got called out. And... Um, I was one of the four that got selected to sort of go on and and, and play, but I had a slight injury. Ah. So, yeah, the usual story. I um, <laughs> came back to the UK and um, I, I missed a trial for Gillingham because they were sort of going to take it further. Um, and I suppose just another, another little funny story for you. My dad ran a farm and his boss at the time was on the board of directors for Gillingham and he was also on the board of directors for West Ham for a period of time. I didn't actually know this until I got a lot older and um, he helped me get through to Gillingham and he was also pushing me forward to actually, if I didn't go to Paris Saint-Germain, then he was looking at me going to West Ham and, you know, whether that happened or not, I, I have no idea. But going forward a few years, I ended up playing a lot of Bournemouth, played a lot of Gillingham. I had quite a bad injury. I was in Paris for about a year to about a year and a half. Then I had an ankle injury and it kept breaking down. Just one of those things. I was so, there was only one player in about six or seven years that I was playing at you know, a good level of football, James, that couldn't get near me. And um, I was just, uh, I was just, I was just really, really quick. And um, I had quite a lot of managers that were quite tough. The first one, um, when I played for Faversham Town, I played at Maidstone as well within that period of time. And they were quite tough, but they always knew that I was a, you know, extremely quick player, but I came back. It, well, it wasn't to be. I had to go through some scans and I went to Scotland for a bit. I had a trial with Hartman Lothian. Didn't really like it. Um, didn't like the structure. To be honest with you, didn't didn't really sort of settle up there. And I suppose the old adage was, to be honest with you, James, I wanted to play professionally. I was sort of 17, 18 at the time, getting to 19. And it wasn't to be. I had some massive experiences. Um, played with some phenomenal, phenomenal players. I mean, some really, really good players. A great experience, but unfortunately, the doctor said that I would break down in a game, and if I broke down, the club was going to be sort of—I say liable, but mm. you know, a lot of investment they were going to put into me, and um, wasn't to be. So, once your sporting career finished, what were your immediate thoughts in regards to what you were going to do next? I had an inkling for entertainment, and I wasn't really sure where that was going to go. I had an inkling for music, and thought, mm, okay, what, what, how is this going to go? And I sort of went from there really I um, never went the university route I never went the college route I my dad didn't want me to work on the farm because he said there was no money in it and quite frankly I agree with him he, he was right at the time so it was a case of what what do I do I effectively started knocking on doors I worked sort of part-time dad on the farm and a few other part-time jobs but I just wanted to sort of work in the music industry and that's sort of sort of how it began so I started knocking on doors really got turned down and got turned down you know many people I spoke to got told no got told no um and then I got my first break worked with a label in London and I sort of worked with them for about a couple of years and then a friend of mine had a subsidiary label under Sony as a dance label and it was supported by uh, Sony France effectively and I started to learn how to put a record into store um, how the promotional aspect worked, how to, you know, manufacture a CD. And I was about 22, 23 once I started to sort of learn. And then some of the, the people I worked in the industry at the time, James, everything was changing, even the 90s. It was 
records were, were selling at you know a vast sum and, and the labels I worked for did sell a lot of record at the time but it was still then and still today you still got to create your own thing so I got made redundant from one label got made redundant from another label uh, to a to a point the second one actually sold back to Sony so I was effectively had all this experience of promotion manufacturing a cd learning how to put it into a shop doing all the the artist process of actually releasing and then i stumbled across a friend of mine that was at kent university he was doing a degree and was one of the sabbatical students that was effectively learning how to well he was not learning he was one of the students that was actually had to put on the summer balls for um university so he called me up and said oh you know you work in the record industry you know you you can help me put an event together. And I said, hang on a minute. I know how to put a CD in the store. What do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I've got to put a summer ball together for Kent University and it's for 5,000 people. And I was like, this is the baptism's of fire. I mean, what am I supposed to do here? Um, and that was my sort of, I suppose, working with labels and then actually my first experience of actually putting events on. So that was quite, um, I wouldn't say traumatic, but it was a big learning curve to say the least. <laughs> I can imagine. I know you've done a lot of work promoting uh, tours for the likes of uh, McFly and Westlife, Kaiser Chiefs, to name a few, and, and festivals including Tea in the Park in Glastonbury. I wondered if we could talk a bit about the process from sort of the start of the event launching all the way through to sort of the opening day of the festival, for example. What, what is the work that you have to do? What, what does it entail? That's a really good question, actually. And I'm, do you know what? I've not really been asked that, I would say, ever, really. Um, may, maybe once, maybe once or twice, but never, never really, um, it's come up in any conversation. It's a, to be honest with you, the process is, is long and hard and can be extremely difficult and painful, but it can, it can also be really, really successful. And I think the one thing that I learned with putting on the summer balls with the universities was the mechanics of actually putting something together. So first of all, you have to look for a sort of a field, um, or a venue, you have to go and talk to the venue to make sure that, um, that you know they're happy with you to put on an event, or you've got to talk to the, the landowner about what you're trying to put together. So you sort of tick that box. Then you sort of go through and you speak to the, the local authority, um, and you have you have a conversation with the sort of the, the the events team at the local council and say this is the type of thing you're thinking of. Then you start have a conversation about the licensing authority about how you're going to effectively you know, put the event on. What's your capacity going to be? That's a, those two things are big learning curves just on their own. Just to deal with the venue, look at what a venue needs, and then you've got to obviously talk to the local authority because you can't put an event on without a license. So you go down that road, and no one really taught me how to do this. There's no manual to say this is what you do from day one and this is what you do from day two. It was more my you know on the run really. But you then go and talk to a bank manager and I had some really great conversation with the bank managers saying, I want to put on a festival, can I borrow half a million quid? And they look at you and say, oh, really? So you come out of there thinking, okay, he said no, so where am I going to raise this money? <laughs> <laughs> like anybody, it's just like anything you, you, know, you know you try to do. And then it's more of a case of, okay, I've been told no by the bank. I can't go and talk to my dad about half a million quid because I know he hasn't got it. So where do I go, to be honest? <laughs> So then it was being a bit more pragmatic. Then it's looking at, okay, where do we need to go? So I need to put a business plan together. Where do I go to do a business plan and how do I find out about that? So I went and spoke to a couple of entertainment attorneys. I spoke to a local accountant that specialised in sort of event management. And I started getting an understanding of of putting numbers down, structuring a business plan, what you need to do. I sort of mastered that over a period of time. Went back to see the bank manager. The bank manager liked what we were doing. 
and gave us a small overdraft. So I thought, oh, okay, that's quite interesting. And we sort of moved forward from that point. So really the first three things are venue, um, license and authority, and then making sure you've, you've got your plan all together. So once you've got those things together and then you want to take it further and you start building up a, a, a track record, it all comes down to dealing with the agent and the manager. And that's quite a tricky process because the agent wants to know what your track record is and whether or not how many people you put in the field to whether or not they're going to actually entertain you booking or actually, you know, having their artist on, on your, um, on your show effectively. Once you get over that hurdle, you start to build a relationship with the agent and a management team and they start building trust in you and you start building trust in them. But the, the one driving mechanism behind all of this, James, is you do need a big bank account to do it. I mean, to put on a festival, just to give you a, a, just a rough idea, you would, if me and you were doing it tomorrow, we would need half a million pounds just sitting in a bank account ready to go and be prepared for that to lose that money. Oh, yeah. Okay, there's <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just, you know, I'm going to say to you, we're going to expect to lose this money, but the groundbreaking of this is not to lose the money. You need three to five years to build a festival and you need to work with all those parties in between and especially the, the license and authority to actually so you can maximise sales and you can maximise the, the capacity. So year one, you might have three to 5,000 people, year two, 10, and you might build up to 20, 30,000 people um, you know, in year five and obviously turn in a profit. And with all of that mechanism, you've got to deal with investors. So you know, you've got a lot of different people to deal with, as I just mentioned, investors, bank manager, uh, one, accountant, lawyer, two, venue, three, license and authority, four, whole groups of people, whole different mechanics there to deal with. Then you've got to deal with the agent and you've got to deal with all the acts. So you could be dealing with, I mean, some of the big festivals deal with 70, 80 acts over a weekend, some 100. So you've got 100 acts to deal with and you've potentially got 15 to 20 agents to deal with and all their managers and all their entourage. Um, so you've got that to deal with. Then you've got to look at actually making money. So you've got to look at what your ticket price is going to be, day um, ticket, weekend ticket, camping ticket, um, VIP ticket, program sales, merchandise. How are you going to leverage TV rights? If you're going to get any TV rights, are you going to be able to sell a compilation album? If so, you're going to get clearance rights from the labels to actually you know, use that material. There's so much thing. And that's why there's a lot of sort of event management courses now, James, but I still don't think you can be being on the ground and actually learning, um, you know, I suppose from ground upwards, really. And I think part of my determination within that was actually playing football because I went from playing in a team of 11 players as a unit and going out each week in rain, sunshine, hail, snow, whatever, mud, good times, bad times, but you as a unit, I come into the music industry and it can be really lonely. So I used to pull on a lot of the stuff that I playing football that got me through because you're dealing with all sorts of people in the industry um you know then you've got to deal with the mu musicians and they're a different sort of breed um to deal with them and you've got to make sure they're all all comfortable and looked after in their own sort of right and it's a great experience when it all comes together james it's a phenomenal experience when it goes wrong you just want to crawl up and die because it's the worst <laughs> feeling ever ever but I suppose it's been in my blood for all my, pretty much all my life, really. And it's, um, I wouldn't change any of it. But if someone come up to me now and said, um, I want to be a promoter, I said, let's have to sit down and have, and have a conversation because I think I need to enlighten you about this process. <laughs> Peter, we've reached the part of the show where I have to ask you, what is the worst gift <laughs> you've ever been given? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
it was um I, I was only young and um it was holiday going away for christmas and um my mum was taking me up to scotland for the first time because my all my mum's relatives or my relatives were from scotland and i was only quite young i think eight seven eight nine maybe and i hadn't seen one of my aunties ever for, i just hadn't seen her so we were staying with with my aunt Jan at the time, and I was all excited. It was Christmas, and I thought, "Oh, this is going to be really, you know, really good. I'll get to open all my presents in Scotland." I thought, "This is great." It was snowing as well, so we went up on the train, mum and dad, and um, I think we got an overnight sleeper. So it was really exciting. Got there, um, it was sort of the night before Christmas, and there's all these presents under the tree, and I thought, "Oh, this is going to be really cool." And I was, you know, young, so all I care about was Santa Claus and, you know, if I'm leaving him in mince pies, but with what presents have I got? Get up the next day and, you know, I think I was up at stupid o'clock, probably four, half past four or something. So um, I'll go and rattle my mum and dad up and come downstairs and obviously I had to wait for my auntie and uncle and um, I opened up my presents and um, my auntie then gave me this this present and I opened it up and it was one of the most... <laughs> it was a a bright yellow jumper nice like a, a <laughs> with a round neck and it was that garish i'll probably wear it today to be honest with you <laughs> but when he's seven years old eight years old i looked at my mom and i just wanted a tonka toy or i just wanted action man or something and i had this bright yellow jumper and it was like a it, it was over big and my mum sort of said, I oh, know, thank your auntie. And I did. And my mum came away and said to me, it's, it's okay. You, you just got to wear it on Christmas day. I had to wear the bloody thing on Christmas day. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I was, I was mortified, but everyone said, oh, really nice looking at your jump. And I was like, oh, dearie me. I, I really don't want to be wearing this, but obviously best intentions. Um, unfortunately my auntie's no longer with us anymore but she would probably laugh today if, if i'm uh, talking about this but i just opened it up expecting it to be like a big truck or action man or i don't know spider-man or something and it was a big yellow jumper that i just really didn't want In all your years of promoting, are there particular moments that sort of stick with you as sort of key learning experiences throughout the journey? Yeah, I think I think there's there's I did about five years working for Close Show Live. Gavin, who was the sort of main person um, for Close Show Live, sadly passed away a few years. He was the instigator for um, Gavin Brown for Close Show Live, and um, he came to us one day and said, "I want to put music, you know, into the show." They had a massive catwalk. And they would try and break different acts on that catwalk. And they had seven shows per day on a catwalk with the, with the public um, of about 7,000 people in the arena. Um, but what he also wanted to do is put music jotted around the arena. So you, you would have dance music mixed with, say, urban music mixed with alternative or rock music. And we did that for about five years. And that was really, really rewarding because you was bringing new music to that platform and you had 13 and 14 and 15 year old girls and boys attending Close Show Live, you know, for a long, long time, experiencing new music. And I was really proud of that because it really worked because music and fashion are, are very, very entwined together and it just worked really well. And I suppose the other one that I had a lot to do with over the years was the automatic, um, the monster coming over the hill. Oh, yeah, I remember it. Yeah, they, they, um, there's a friend of mine that was a manager. I met him in New York over a beer and quite a funny little story, actually. He was telling me about the band and played me a couple of tracks. And I said, oh, it's really cool. And he said, I'm just waiting for a call from the label. And I think they ended up signing to CBS and, um, in America. 
And I was really proud of it. I said, no, it's really, really cool what you've done and um, got on really well with him. And then he would phone me up and say, actually, the band had been signed and I'm looking for a tour manager. You know, would you, you know, do some shows with the band? And I said, absolutely, love to. And um, that was a really proud moment. They sort of did from, I didn't do Glastonbury, but I did sort of Tea in a Park with them. I did uh, Leeds and Reading, um, did the Electric Gardens Festival that I was in heavily involved with, did Lock and Load with them, did the NME tour, um, quite a lot of shows with them. So, yeah, that was really nice to see a young band sort of go from, you know, their roots growing up in Wales and and sort of moving forward and selling a lot of records. So that was quite a proud moment, really. Peter, you're also the co-founder of a company called Seamless Entertainment, which provides music solutions for the motion picture industry. So I wonder if you could <clears> tell me a bit more about your work, uh, what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely, James. And um, basically, Seamless got born out of um, frustration. And um, at the time, I was um, still a music manager and I pretty much going through a bit of a rough time at that point in my life. Both my parents passed away and uh, it was just, you know, we, we all, everybody goes through it at a, at a certain point in their life. And I just had enough really. So I come out of the business and after about a couple of years, I was invited to a show for a Majesty's Theatre in London. And it was effectively Andrew Lloyd Webber, one of his charities, and it was a, for a cancer charity. So I had quite a big affinity with that, with my both my parents passing away from cancer. And I thought, you know, I want to sort of anything that I can, I want to sort of support and you know, like anybody would really. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go along. And um, it was a really good show. And it was basically supporting this little girl. She had cancer. And I think Andrew Lloyd Webber gave up the, the, the venue for nothing. And I think he sort of donated some money and they raised a lot of money. And I ended up meeting um, my business partner and, and longtime uh, friend and colleague, today which was Rebecca Gregory Becky said to me we had a conversation and um, she sort of knew a little bit about me in the business but at that point James I was a bit off sort of I never really promoted myself I just sort of let it all I didn't really tell anybody anything what I did or, uh, okay you know I just I wasn't one of those people so now I'm it's a, it's a lot more changed because I thought well the way the, the world's changed you sort of have to really but I didn't and um, I, I remember having a conversation with Becky and she was one of the principal performers and um, she's one of the singers and she did really well, but she wanted to cross over into the music industry. And I basically said to her, look, do you want me to really tell you about this business or <laughs> do you want me to fluff it up? So <laughs> she said, no, really tell me. And I did. And she didn't listen to me for a couple of years. And um, I took her in to see some of the biggest agents in the world. And one of the things it was, she was a bit like rabbits in the headlights with this one meeting we went in because she didn't really know what this particular agent was all about until I've, she was in front of him and um, it was William Morris and I took her in to see Solomon Parker and Solomon looked after the prodigy and Gary Barlow. And um, we had a meeting there and I said to her at the time, look, I'm taking you in. So you understand really what a top level agent and what they do. So you, you, you'll, you'll be aware. I had a great meeting and um, they had a great conversation and we come away and she sort of said, what's next? And we sort of, you know, fast forward 10 years um, it's another thing that I'm actually really proud of because what's happened with Becky is that she released a debut album. And from that, the, the industry so can be so fickle, James. So the reason we, we created Seamless, coming back to your earlier point, was we were frustrated at the business. Becky wanted to cross over to the music industry and I she now fully understands how difficult that is. So Seamless was born on the frustration of um, all of our experiences, all, all of Becky's experience of touring all over the world. And she's done, um, you know, she's worked for the King of Dubai. She worked for Andrew Lloyd Webber. She's done Top of the Pops. She's done all sorts. So I said, once you come into the music industry, you're starting again from scratch. No one knows who you are and no one really cares who you are. So you have to create something for yourself. 
so we put our heads together and the one thing that's big in the music industry james as i'm sure you will completely agree with and understand is the song the song is the most important thing no song basically the machine does doesn't work no festivals happen no one puts a song into the shop bands don't play anymore it's as simple as that absolutely so i said to her you know you create great songs and they will live forever so we decided to create a, a sync um platform business for film and tv and one of the areas we got really immersed in was that we put becky's album together becky worked work still works with alan glass um one of the american producers but alan lives in london now and becky's been working with him for on and off for about i suppose 10 years really eight to ten years and Alan's worked with Reese Franklin, George Benson, Lighthouse Family. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So she put her album out. Um, she also um, worked with Greg Haver from the Manic Street Preachers as well. So she, she had a really great album. So I said to her, once we've got the album, we can then promote it. And, and then fast forward a couple of years, that's exactly what we did. So we did a, did a lot of touring, a lot of shows. And then we got immersed into the sync world. So her album got get took by um, a very good friend of ours now, um, Mr. Art Ford. And Art is basically one of the best music supervisors in the world. He's placed music in everything and anything. Anything you put on the telly, James, Art's done it. From the Bodyguard, Transformers, Blended, um, Equalizer 1 and 2, everything. So Becky really understood about the music side and the songwriting side. So we immersed ourselves into the sync side for about 10 years, really. Um, and Seamless effectively works in the, the, the synchronization, so that the film catalogue, placing film, uh, sorry, placing songs into film and TV and video games. We have a catalogue um, that we sort of work with across the world of about half a million songs. Wow. We have different producers that we work with. Um, we don't own all those songs. We own some songs and we were able to dip in and out of some songs. But it's a really interesting area because the way that I learned to put a record out back in the 90s, you don't do that anymore because the way technology has changed. So the way that a record gets broken now is from a TV and, and a, a video game or a, a film. And I'm sure there's been instances where you've put on the telly, whether that's Netflix, Amazon or whatever it is, and you'd like a bit of music and you've gone, oh, that's really cool. Nine times out of 10, you'll go and check that bit of music out. Yeah. And that's exactly yeah. what they do. That's how they capture you. So we've been doing that for a, a long time. And then I suppose out of that touching on what, what you do, we just developed our own podcast. Again, out of frustration and out of lockdown as well, James, so a bit like what you've done, we wanted to sort of create something, demystify the industry. So the Entertainment Engine podcast is based on what we will do at Seamless, but we wanted to share really relevant entertainment information to the community and, and just to new, new bands and artists coming through. And that's partly what why Seamless was, was born. And... Um, sort of moving that way forward, we sort of see it as we have a broadcast platform. We have a bank of songs we're able to place in, in film and TV. We have new talent coming to us. We're just going to be launching a streaming platform next year, uh, working with Australia, New Zealand and the US. And so we're really excited about it. And I think what it's taught me over this last 12 months, but probably over my career is you've got to keep changing with the times and you've got to be really, really proactive and doing what you're doing because nothing's going to come to you in this industry. And going back to some of my experience in football, when it's cold and rainy and wet on a Tuesday night and you're playing at Stoke-on-Trent and Grimsby <laughs> and you don't want to be there, 
and you're in front of, you know, 200 people that are saying, you know, they don't want to be there. It, it sort of concentrates the mind a little bit. But yeah, we're really proud of Seamless and we're really proud of, you know, what we're trying to achieve. And um, one thing we, we are certain of is that content is king. So we're going to see more and more content coming out. Um, there's obviously going to be a lot more podcasts coming to the community, a lot more films coming out, a lot more TV shows. Music streaming has gone through the roof. It's just people want to consume. They want to consume a lot of content. And I think um, from what we've seen, the streaming platforms, music supervision, publishing is is the way to go. Peter, wrapping up, if you could go right back to the beginning of your career and buy yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? I got into computers late. Okay. And I got forced into computers um, only because the way that, that everything was going. So as soon as I started doing festivals and um, learning, I had to sort of get a spreadsheet and learn a computer. So I'd, I'd go back and I'd, I suppose two things, James, I'd go back and train and I'd buy myself a little computer because I think that would be the gift that I'd, bu- I'd have bought myself at, at a young age. Knowing what I know now is the, is the usual story of finishing playing football and thinking what is going to happen, you know, the rest of my life, I think I'd have bought a little computer and, and um, that would have been my gift to me and not been wearing the yellow jumper either, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Peter, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Well, they can just they can get in touch with us. Look at seamlessentertainment.co.uk and obviously on there, we've also got the Entertainment Engine podcast so they can check out what we do on entertainment, anything from film, TV, music. Um, yeah, they can happily get in contact with them on, on that side of it and um, we'll be happy to um, have a conversation and um, see what we can do moving forward well Peter it's been absolutely fantastic to chat with you thanks so much for stopping by James it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you thanks for inviting me to your podcast thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com. <laughs>